get it. We make note of the time, so I know that's not the right time. Oh, is that an hour behind? Is it 9.09? Look at the, okay, 8.34, okay. That's helpful. I need to know where to look. I don't carry a watch with me. Uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak to you this morning. Uh, I love teaching and preaching God's Word. Absolutely love it. Uh, and this church has given me the opportunity to be in a ministry to do that. I love teaching on Wednesday nights and Sunday morning. And there's nothing more important to me than teaching God's Word. There really isn't. Because there's lots of ideas and philosophies out there, but there's only one thing that endures besides people, and that's the Word of God. The Word of God lives forever. And only one thing will change your life, and it's not my ideas. It's not self-help. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the Word of God and the Spirit working in you through His Word. So we could do nothing more valuable today than study His Word and understand what God has revealed to us. If you don't know me, my name is Mark Liebert. My wife and I and our three kids, three teenage kids, we've been attending First Christian, been members here for a little under three years. We came in October of 2009, so it's been that long already. Some of you are saying, wow, it's been three years already. I know time goes by quickly. Uh, my daughter is 17 next month yeah, in August, my son 15, and my other son 13. So Tommy and all those of you who work in the youth program, thank you for investing so much in my kids. They're at a critical stage. Two of them just got back going with Tommy and the group to CIY Move down there at Lee University. Uh, tremendous impact, so thank you. I have a big task today. I want to do It's my own fault. I, I chose to do this. I want to pull together for you an understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> That's what I want to do. And I want to show you how Christ is the glue that holds the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And my desire today and my, my prayer as I've been preparing for this is that the name of God, I'm going to tell you right from the start what my goal is. My prayer is that the name of God may be glorified as Jesus Christ is exalted through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That is what I pray. Because we serve a triune God. One God who exists in three persons. So in your notes, and I hope you will use the sermon outline that I put in there. Thanks for putting that in this week, guys. And I know they'll be tracking with me on the overheads as well. But I want you to fill these in as we get there. We're going to start with Leviticus 16. It does say Hebrews 10, and we'll end with that. That's where we're headed. We'll finish with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. But we're going to start in Leviticus. You do not hear many sermons from Leviticus. I don't know if you've ever heard any sermon from Leviticus. Well, some of you probably have. But you're about to hear a sermon from Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Please turn there. It's just the third book of the Bible. You should have a Bible in front of you or if you brought one with you. And I want you to just read along as we go. We'll start in Leviticus. And then when it comes time to do Christ's fulfillment and the application, I'll give you what to fill in here. You'll also see it on the screen. All right. And I want to give credit for a lot of the thoughts today because any of us who speaks or teaches God's word rests on the shoulders of others who've gone before us, always. In fact, if I am bringing you any novel ideas today, they're probably heresy. Novel ideas are not a good thing when you teach the Word of God, okay? We've had this Word complete for 2,000 years. I shouldn't be coming up with a lot of new ideas. What I need to be doing is reminding you of things you already know or things you haven't thought of in a certain way, but not new ideas. That's how cults are started. Don't come up with new ideas. <laughs> so, we'll start in Leviticus, and I'll give credit to a man by the name of Christopher Wright, uh, a theologian, scholar, who, a commentary that I have used for a lot of my material, and I just want to give him credit for some of these thoughts. 
But if you'll turn with me to Leviticus 16, I just want to start by reading the first few verses, and we'll go from there. So again, take the Bible in front of you if you don't have one, and let's just start the first five verses of Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which is the one Scott uses most. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. We'll stop there for now. We're not in our New Testament period and being non-Jews. We're not that familiar with the makeup of what the tabernacle looked like, sometimes called the tent of meeting. So I'd ask the guys to put up just a, a picture of what that looked like. The, the tabernacle itself was where God met with his people. This is a, a diagram of the tabernacle. It starts with the outside here. It had the bronze altar and the laver, and then you had the holy place. So this was an inner building inside the tabernacle, and the temple later followed the same design, but this is the tabernacle itself, or the tent of meeting. In the holy place, you have the table of the showbread. Remember when David needed bread at one point? That's where it came from. Uh, the lampstand and the altar of incense. Then there was a curtain, a veil. We're all familiar with that. We sang a song about it this morning. The veil separated the holy place from what's referred to in several ways as the most holy place or the holy of holies, it's also called in some of your versions. Anyone could come in the courtyard. Only a priest could go to the holy place. And who could go to the holy of holies? Who? Who? A high priest. How often? One time a year. I am more a teacher than a preacher, so you'll have to interact when I ask you questions. That's right. Only one time a year, and that's what we're reading. Chapter 16 of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. It is the one time a year that anyone was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. What That little thing in there is the ark. We have a picture of that, if you can pull that up, guys. Just want to show what that looks like. Of course, we don't know exactly, but something like this, because it was overlaid in gold. And those are the cherubim that are on top of it. So let me just talk a little bit about how this worked. The Holy of Holies was the inner part of the tabernacle, and this curtain that separated them, the estimates range that it was between two and four inches thick. Hung from top to bottom, and between two and four inches thick. That's one thick curtain. That is not a little veil, as we sometimes think of a veil. Thick, thick curtain to separate. Exodus 26, 33 and 34 says, You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Why is it called the ark of the testimony? What's the testimony? It's the commandments, the Ten Commandments. What was in the ark? Ten Commandments. We later know from Hebrews they put a jar of manna in there as well, representing God's provision for them in the wilderness, but not at this time yet. And then Aaron's staff that budded when they were trying to decide who can be the priest. And Aaron, they all put their staffs down, and then Aaron made his dead staff bud. <laughs> all that ended up being 
in the ark. But the testimony. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy, and you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. What's the mercy seat? It's that covering. If you want to put that picture back up there again, the two cherubim, between them, that cover is the mercy seat. It's all in your NIV Bible, it's called the, uh, just the atonement cover. But in the ESV, it's, I prefer that translation, it says the mercy seat. That's actually what it's talking about. God would meet with his people right there. That's where his presence was. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the two cherubim looked down. And God's presence would meet them right there. Exodus 25, 21, and 22 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. This is, there is no more important place in ancient Israel than right here. But the Day of Atonement was the only time when the high priest could even go there. It's the only time of the year and only the high priest they could be in the very presence of God. Leviticus, we read chapter 16, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God's presence is holy. The point he was making was you do not just come willy-nilly into the presence of God. Unless you are holy, you don't just waltz into his presence. Hey, God, here I am. God was trying to teach his people through revelation of the word, through how they acted, through the Sabbath where they kept themselves holy, through this tabernacle complex. Everything he was teaching his people was that he was a holy God. He was not like the gods of the pagan nations around them. Gods they could manipulate through sacrifice. If they fed their God, they could get their God to do what they wanted. What an insult to the very name of God. And God said, I am not like those other so-called gods. In fact, you don't even come into my presence because I am holy, except once a year. We've lost some of that awe of the presence of God, have we not? Israel got it. In fact, Nadab and Abihu... They were the sons of Aaron. They were next in line to be the high priests. They came into the presence of God in an unauthorized way. We don't know exactly what they did, but they didn't take seriously God's prescribed way of entering his presence. They insulted him with the way they came in. They thought of him as a common thing, a profane thing, and their lives were paid for it. Even when the high priest came in, he still couldn't look directly at the presence of God. Even on that one day, he had to take incense with him so that he wouldn't die and see the presence of God. Leviticus 16, 12, and 13. We'll get there when we read a little bit more. It says, He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. So that altar that's outside, he takes some coals in. He takes two handfuls of sweet incense, and he brings it inside the veil. He puts the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense covers the mercy seat over the testimony so that he does not die. Even on the one day that the high priest could go in, he has to cover the presence of God with a cloud that he creates from burning incense so he doesn't see. 
if nothing else, if nothing else, the people of Israel knew God is holy. Unmistakable teaching. If you're in ancient Israel, you understand that concept. God is holy. So what's this Day of Atonement ceremony about? Well, it involves a bull and two goats, and actually there's a ram for a burnt offering at the end. So there's lots of sacrifices going on. Verse 6 and 7, let's pick up there. Leviticus 16, we'll start in verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull for a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Azazel in NIV is called scapegoat. It's like the wilderness of Azazel. The point is it's a scapegoat that's eventually going to go to the wilderness. Don't be concerned about that word. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire. We read this from the altar of the Lord, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Even seeing the presence of God would kill him. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. By the way, that tabernacle, it all faced east to west. So he's coming in. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Seven is just the number of completion in the Bible. That's all it is. Not magical, but it signifies completion. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. Do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses or uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself, for his house, for all the assembly of Israel. So he's the only one involved. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Shall take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. We'll go through verse 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. All right, here's the scapegoat now. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat Confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. I'll stop there. What in the world is going on? Not a familiar concept to us. Not a ritual or a ceremony that we know. Well, let me explain what's going on here. The bull was sacrificed as a sin offering for the priests first. Aaron had to make an offering for himself and his family. Why did he have to do that? Why couldn't he just start by making atonement for the people of Israel? He's got his own sin problems to deal with. 
He can't do anything for anyone else until he deals with his own. So the first thing he has to do is take care of his own sins. So he washes, he puts on special clothes, then he enters the most holy place with incense so that he cannot see the presence of God. He sprinkles blood on the front of the mercy seat, and this is to make atonement for himself and his household. That's step one. Step two, he takes the first goat, the goat that's chosen for the Lord. This is a sin offering for the people. He again sprinkles the blood on and in front of the mercy seat. And it specifically says, did you pick that up? Verse 16, to make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleannesses and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Did you pick up that a lot of this atonement was for things, for the altar, for the mercy seat, for the tabernacle? What does that mean, make atonement for an altar? In exactly what way has the altar sinned? not what it means the sacrifice the blood sacrifices of the old testament there were four of them you have the burnt offering and the sin offering these two are involved in the day of atonement you also have the fellowship offering and the guilt offering all of them bring forgiveness of sins that's their point but they each emphasize something different each of them emphasizes something different the sin offering emphasizes that there's contamination left by sin we are unclean because of the effects of sin. So the sin offering brings cleansing. That's what the sin offering does. <clears throat> so the sin offering on the Day of Atonement is to cleanse whatever has been basically affected by sin, contaminated. So the altar, the presence of God, the mercy seat, everything in the tabernacle was cleansed one by one as he went through that complex because of the contamination that sin brings. That is a concept that we so easily forget. Yes, there's forgiveness of sin, but it's contaminating. It contaminates your life and it contaminates my life. The sin offering dealt with the cleansing that was needed because of the contamination of sin. That was the first goat. Second goat is for the scapegoat, the Azazel, the scapegoat ceremony. Now, this is the only part that people can see. So this is the climax for them. You and I, as the congregation of Israel, not being part of the high priest's house or even the high priest himself, this is what we see. This is the part that we're aware of. What goes on here? Aaron lays both his hands, or the high priest lays both his hands on the head of this goat and confesses over it all of the transgressions, the sins, the iniquity of the people of Israel. I'll bet that took a while. Just think about your own sins. Don't think too deeply. It's a horrible thought. You're going to take two minutes to name them? Come on, let's be honest. We're full of sin. I am. Think of all of the people of Israel laying their hands symbolically through Aaron on the head of this goat, confessing their sins on the goat. The goat was then driven off. He bore their iniquities and carried them far away. That was the point. Their sins were taken far away from them. So you had Aaron making atonement for himself with a sin offering, cleansing. Aaron taking a goat, making atonement for the people and all of the tabernacle complex, cleansing. Then you have the goat ceremony with the live goat, bearing their iniquities and taking them away. Then he comes out, he washes, he takes off these special clothes and puts back on normal clothes. And we'll pick up now verse 23, if you can just jump there, if you have that up there, guys. Leviticus 16, verse 23. 
Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments that he put on when he went to the holy place, and leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water again in, holy, in the holy place and put it on his garments and come out. And now he offers, notice, a burnt offering. We haven't talked about that one yet. A burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and his, bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So the last thing is a burnt offering. Remember I told you there were four blood sacrifices. The burnt offering was the most common offering. In fact, it had to burn on the altar day and night. The burnt offering had a special emphasis. It was not impurity or cleanliness. It was payment of a ransom. A payment made to satisfy the righteous anger of a holy God. That's what it was. And in the New Testament, picks that up. Ransom. Jesus paid our ransom. We'll talk about that. The wrath of God is justly kindled against a creation that he made who rebels in defiance against him. That's you and that's me, friends. Whenever we choose to do what we will rather than what God wills, we are shaking our fists at God and saying, not your will, my will. So the burnt offering, yes, brought forgiveness of sins and God's mercy. He provided for it. But it did it in a way that satisfied the anger of God. Just anger of God. Righteous anger of God. Anger that we deserved. And then they burned everything up when they were done. That is the Day of Atonement ceremony. All right. I want you to get your notes out, and I want to talk about this. I want you to fill this in. How am I doing on time? All right. The purpose was cleansing. But let's talk about Christ's fulfillment. Just like the high priest, Christ is our one mediator. Our one mediator. That's your first blank. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It was the high priest in the Old Testament. It's Jesus in the New Testament. Number two, just like the scapegoat, Christ bore our sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, right? We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like that scapegoat was laid on him and taken away. Third, like the goat of the sin offering, Christ's sacrifice cleansed us. 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us or purifies us, some of your versions say, from all sin just like that blood of the sin offering, the first goat. And then lastly, just like the rams of the burnt offering, Christ's payment satisfied God. Did you get those? One mediator bore our sins, cleansed us, satisfied God. Hebrews 9.15 says, He died, Christ died, as a ransom, there's the word, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In Romans 3.25, uses a fancy term in the English Standard Version, whom God put forth as a propitiation. You ever heard that term? Many of you have. By his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation simply means a payment that satisfies anger. 
That's what it means. It means a payment that satisfies. So Christ fulfilled all of the Day of Atonement ceremony. All of it. My mother was talking to a neighbor that just moved down here from the north. Northeast, actually. An area of the country that is not... I don't know how to say this. They don't go to church as much (laughs) in the Northeast. And she said, look, I understand talking about God, but why is Jesus such a big deal around here? Literally, she asked my mom that this week. Why is Jesus such a big deal around here? You know why Jesus is such a big deal? Because everything in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it. The law. Think of the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly in our place so that he might be righteous before God and he would die as a righteous sacrifice. Every one of the sacrifices, and I could talk about the fellowship offering and I could talk about the guilt offering, but I don't have time this morning. All of them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. That is why all roads do not lead to Rome and cannot lead to Rome. If you do not approach God through Jesus Christ, you will not see God. Jesus himself said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Why is Jesus such a big deal? Because he was uniquely the Son of God, righteous in his divinity, but also righteous in keeping the law perfectly, whose sacrifice once for all fulfilled everything that God's law demanded for you and me. You cannot get a bigger deal than Jesus Christ. Without him, we are people without hope, still under the wrath of God, still impure because of our sins. There is no greater gift So how do you apply this? Let me give you three. There are so many applications, but I just want to give you three this morning. Three things. And if you remember one of them, I will be happy. I pray that God helps you remember one of these this week. But I'm going to tell you right now, these concepts have changed my life. They have changed the life of my wife. And I'm praying they change the life of my kids. And I want you to grasp them as well. Truth will set you free. And what I'm teaching this morning is the truth of God's word. Three applications. Number one. As our scapegoat, Christ bore God's wrath to give us peace with God. Oh, my friends, you have no greater need than peace with God. The Bible says we are enemies in our natural state. I'm not making this up. Look it up in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We are enemies of God until Christ reconciles us. Because we shake our fists at him and say, my way. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We no longer fear God's anger. Do you still fear God's anger? You do not need to if you know Jesus Christ. But if you try to approach him in any other way than without Jesus, than with Jesus, I should say, then you should fear God's anger. You approach God through Jesus Christ. Because he bore God's wrath to give you peace with God. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. God's wrath poured out on his son to give you peace. To give me peace. 
Romans 5.1. And I hope you memorize verses like these. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care what version you use. Memorize those. Do you feel guilty? Do you still feel the guilt of your sin? If you are in Christ Jesus, that is a lie that you are believing. You claim by faith what Jesus Christ did for you. You have no more guilt. You have no more fear. Because in Christ, your payment has been made. Hang on to that, folks. You don't come with anything of your own good before God. You don't come because you're proud of how you've acted this week. You come because of Jesus Christ and in him alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we sang the song this morning. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that you are righteous in God's eyes right now if you are in Christ? Who's in Christ? Those who've repented of their sins, have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who claim him as Savior. Do you claim him as Savior? That's one. If you could hang on to that for the rest of your life, that you are at peace with God, your number one problem has been taken care of. God is not your enemy. He is your friend. That he smiles when he looks at you. Because he doesn't see you. He sees the righteousness of Christ overlaid when he looks at you. Because at the cross, you made a great exchange. Your filthiness and sin for his righteousness and holiness. What an amazing concept. You are free from guilt and shame and fear because of Christ. Number two, as our sin offering, Christ cleanses us to give us direct access to God. I said we would end with Hebrews 10, and I want you to think about that now. Well, Luke 23, 45 said the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What does that mean before we get to Hebrews 10? That two to four inch curtain was torn in two. Why? What does that symbolize? It was done by God. What does it symbolize? Access to God Almighty. It's open now, friends. It's open. And so the writer of Hebrews would say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we, you and I, have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Can you, okay, you must stop and think. I painted the picture for you of who gets to go in there one time a year and can't even see the presence of God. Now you and I get to go directly to the presence of God. In fact, the Bible says we are now in the presence of God. Because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the writer of Hebrews says, you have confidence. Go directly. Sorry. <coughs> Could use some water. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. As the curtain was torn, so his body was torn to give you access to God. So he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God. I can't tell you how revolutionary that is. You're a Jew in the Old Testament. You don't have the right to go before God. You now, a Gentile, not of the tribe of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, not of the people of Aaron, not the high priest, not the one day a year, not bathed specially, not with the special clothes, not with the incense. You go directly to the presence of God. Do you avail yourself of that opportunity? Do you take the chance, an opportunity to go to God? 
He says, draw near to me. How much time do we spend drawing near? Last point, and I'm a couple minutes over, so I want to finish up. As high priest, God, Christ, understands our struggles and defends us before God. All right, if it wasn't enough that I have peace with God, my greatest problem solved forever. If it then wasn't enough that I can approach him on my own at any point through Jesus Christ, <clears throat> if that wasn't enough, he says, when you sin and you will, you have a high priest who understands. Do you know what that means? That means there is no category of sin that you experience in life that Jesus doesn't understand. No, it doesn't mean does he know what it's like to be tempted to play too many video games. It doesn't mean that. It means every category of sin. Pride, lust, greed, selfishness, discontent, all the different sins that we struggle with. He knows them, but he said no to every one of them. He knows what it's like. So what happens when you sin? He defends us before God. What an amazing truth. Just put up 1 John 2, 1. And then we'll finish with Romans 8. 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Can you picture this in heaven? You trusting in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, a true believer in Jesus Christ, you still sin. And when you do, Jesus stands before the Father and says, I paid for that sin. That child is mine. I paid for that sin. Is this an incentive to sin? No way. Because if you follow Jesus Christ, you want nothing more than to please him. But you won't always do it. <laughs> and he defends you before God when you fail. Romans eight thirty three and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. What an amazing truth. So I ask you to meditate on three applications. Your, your greatest problem is solved. You're at peace with God. Let that change your life. You don't need to fear God's anger anymore. There's no guilt and condemnation. You have access to him at any point. And when you fail, he stands before God and defends you and says, I paid for that sin. If you will grab hold of those truths, they will change your life forever. You will not live a defeated Christian life. You will live a victorious Christian life. Because what do you have to fear when God has done it all for you? My greatest desire as a teacher is that I may exalt the name of Christ because of what he has done that we could not. And we're going to take communion in a couple minutes. That picture is of what he did for you as his body was torn so your access to God is established. Hang on to those truths, my dear friend.